rummaging through my files this week concerning the story of Mary and Martha you just heard, I was reminded that some commentators hypothesized that Martha was likely older than Mary, reasoning that Martha behaved like the eldest sibling based on studies of birth order traits. So just for fun, I typed birth order into my search engine and all sorts of books and tips and quips appeared that were going to revolutionize one's life by taking charge of one's place among their siblings. You could learn how to find a suitable mate, mix a potent alchemy of birth order psychology and astrology, and discover how to compensate as a parent to avoid pitfalls of birth order outcomes. Some titles went like this. The Birth Order Book, Why You Are the Way You Are. Birth Order Blues, How Parents Can Help Their Children Meet the Challenges of Their Birth Order. The Birth Order Book of Love, and so on. Although there's controversy about birth order psychology, some researchers report that firstborns tend to grow up to be responsible types. Serious, conscientious, directive, goal-oriented, aggressive, rule-conscious, exacting, conservative, organized, responsible, jealous, fearful, high-achieving, competitive, and anxious. So we, we could deduce Martha's the older sister, given her focus on fulfilling the obligations of hospitality and behavior for a woman of her time. We also note she was irked that Mary hadn't done her duty, hadn't lived into her responsibilities. Of course, in the same birth order framework, youngest siblings are thought to be more easygoing risk takers, sometimes rebels and rabble rousers. So. Mary's behavior could be compatible with being the youngest by sitting at Jesus' feet. That was an attitude that ran counter to social mores of her day. She was misbehaving. For instance, old Jewish commentary said this, Let thy house be a meeting house for the sages, and sit among the dust of their feet, and drink in their words with thirst, but do not talk much with womankind. Mary was behaving like a male in her time. She neglects the duty to assist her sister in the preparations of the household, and by violating a clear social boundary is acting, you know, shamefully. By convention of the day, responsible Martha has several reasons to be ticked off with Mary. But for all of this homespun psychologizing, I'm not sure how useful it would be if we knew for certain that Martha was the elder. I mean, I don't think that makes us any smarter about what the story means. The fact remains, we need both types of people, irksome as it may be for parents and siblings and friends and churches and businesses and every other sort of social organization. We need responsible people with commitment and follow through. And we need risk-taking rebels who see beyond the rules, regulations, and customs of the day. Sort of odd to consider that sitting at Jesus' feet and drinking in his wisdom might be thought of as disruptive behavior, but, but that seems to be the case. Although, as a sidebar, I wonder how you feel about sitting at Jesus' feet. After all, there he is, up there, and here we are, down here, under his feet. 
And I wonder how this squares with your world. For instance, do the people in your lives know you worship like this? Learning to follow after the way of Jesus? Likely this might be thought rather out there by some of your acquaintances. How does the word Christian land in your circle, especially here in New York City, one of the most overtly secular places in our nation? Well, sitting at his feet this morning, Jesus' larger point appears to hinge on discerning when it's time to listen and learn and when it's time for action. Last week, we read the famous story of the Good Samaritan in which the despised Samaritan extended himself, risked himself on behalf of a beaten man left for dead on the side of the road while the pious religious types walked on by. He bound the man's wounds, took him to an inn, and in paying the fee, told the innkeeper to continue his hospitality. Jesus ended this story by telling the lawyer who had been quizzing him about the proper definition of neighbor, that the Samaritan exhibited the sort of love befitting the kingdom of God. The emphasis was on the doing. Do this and you will live, Jesus said. But then immediately, Luke follows this story with a story emphasizing the sitting and listening, not the doing. Although I suppose we could split hairs here and say the sitting and listening was the proper thing at this moment, the proper doing. Mary, he says, is doing the better part by sitting at Jesus' feet, but only after Martha lodges her complaint. Without considering the story of the Samaritan, we might conclude that Jesus preferred the intentions of sedentary spiritual types over that of workaholics who are constantly busy with many things, or that spiritual study trumps housework or any work for that matter. But as Fred Craddock pointed out, if we censure Martha too harshly, harshly, she may abandon serving altogether. And if we commend Mary too profusely, she may sit there forever. There is a time to go and do. There is a time to listen, reflect, and learn. Knowing which to do when is a matter of spiritual discernment. As Craddock says, if we were to ask Jesus which example applies to us, the Samaritan or Mary, his answer would probably be yes. Both the Samaritan and Mary stepped out of their expected roles to do the better part. One of the lessons is that whether we're in the business of loving God or loving neighbor, if we follow Jesus' script, we're bound to stretch ourselves in ways we did not expect or find especially comfortable. We'll do the unexpected thing for us. If we're doers, we'll find ourselves needing to sit, listen, reflect, and learn. And if we're spiritual types or more prone to sitting and reading, we'll find ourselves needing to engage in tangible action. Mature faith is a function of both. I'm indebted to Thomas Long telling this story about Grace Thomas. Grace was born in the early 20th century as the second of five children. Her father was a streetcar conductor in Birmingham, Alabama, and so Grace grew up in modest circumstances. Later in life, after getting married and moving to Georgia, Grace took a clerking job in the state capitol in Atlanta, where she developed a fondness for politics and the law. 
So although already a full-time mother and a full-time clerk, Grace enrolled in night school to study law. In 1954, Grace shocked her family by announcing that she wanted to run for public office. And what's more, Grace didn't want to run for drain commissioner or for city council. Grace ran for the governor of the state of Georgia. There was a total of nine candidates that year. Nine candidates, one issue. It was 1954, and the issue was Brown versus Board of Education, the landmark decision that mandated desegregation of schools. Grace Thomas was alone among the nine candidates to say she thought this was a just decision. Her campaign slogan was, say Grace at the polls. Hardly anyone did though, and Grace ran dead last. Her family was glad she got it out of her system, except she didn't, and so decided to run for governor again in 1962. By then, the racial tensions were far more taut than they had been eight years earlier. Grace's progressive platform on race issues earned her a number of death threats. One day, she held a rally in a small town and chose as her venue the old slave market in the town square. And as she stood there, Grace motioned to the platform where once human beings had been bought and sold like a product. And she said, the old has passed away and the new has come. A new day has come when all of us, white and black, can join hands and work together. At that point, a red-faced man in the crowd interrupted Grace's speech to blurt out, are you a communist? Why, no, Grace replied quietly. Well then, where'd you get all them goddamned ideas? Grace pointed to the steeple of a nearby Baptist church. I learned them over there in Sunday school. Now, given the context and geography of this story, I think it's not a far stretch to suspect that the man who asked whether Grace was a communist was also a baptized Christian, but clearly never learned the lesson Grace did. That probability is worth a whole day of contemplation, especially at this moment in our national life where noisy self-identified Christians often seem to champion causes and behaviors that run exactly opposite of what Jesus lived and taught. But for our purpose today, consider that evidently Grace sat at the feet of Jesus where she learned that no one was outside of God's redemption, that everyone was loved beyond time and measure, that no prescribed cultural role should prevent God's love from stirring up righteous trouble, and where she also learned that this love was meant to be acted upon in the world. Now, I have no idea whether being second-born had any impact on her development. Actually, pop psychology would suggest she behaved more like either a first or last-born. What is obvious, though, is that Grace was both a learner and a doer. She was a doer and she was a learner. She was loved and she loved right back. 
And I'm thinking that's the way this Christian religion is supposed to work when its adherents are living into the intentions of its founder under whose feet we now sit.